So you'll remember that they've left the first terrace of purgatory, and at the beginning of Canto 13, they arrive on the second terrace. They're in good spirits. They've been guided by the angel. They've had this lovely intimate moment where Dante has realised he really is changing by feeling one of the peas on his forehead disappear. But as they arrive at the second terrace, they're immediately into a very different zone. Again, emphasising, you know, they're not just climbing up a physical mountain. They're rather ascending through spiritual zones uh, where different qualities of soul come to mind, come to sight. And different aspects of ourselves, as it were, are worked upon sort of step by step. And the first thing that strikes them about the terrace of purgatory they're now at is its barrenness. Um, there's no um, beautiful engravings. Um, there's just the livid rock, um, livid meaning sort of bluish grey. Um, it's not got much life. Um, it's a kind of angry feel too. Um, I don't know whether the um, Dante's Italian livid carries both senses that it carries now, but there's something um, disturbed at first about this terrace, which they pick up on straight away, um, its emptiness. You might say it's got no inner life. It's not quite sure what it's there for in this moment. Um, you know, if the, in, if the engravings on the terrace um, beneath them um, had represented some something of the inner life, both for good and for ill. There's none of that here now to guide them. And Virgil picks up on this and uh, wonders quite uh, what they should do here. Um, it's a good indicator of what they're going to begin to discover and discern, um, because, as it were, they can't find their own inner bearings um, as much as they can't see the bearings um, of the environment around them. They're a bit lost. But Virgil, you know, has got wisdom about him. He is in good spirits. He is um, learning. And so he turns to the sun. Remember, the sun is always there. Um, Dante describes him turning to the sun in, in rather a, um, a performative way. He pivots on his right side and turns with his left. Um, I think it's almost a liturgical action, um, a bit like prostrations. Um, he's very deliberately and intentionally doing that. And then, sure enough, he prays to the Son. Um, he's his only full prayer in the whole of the Divine Comedy. And he calls on the sweet Son and emphasises its contrast with the environment around them. You know, the Son constantly pours down its warmth, its life, its vitality as well as, of course, always giving direction. And I think we're beginning to see set up an opposite pole um, for this new terrace. Um, the sun freely gives. It showers down its blessing on everyone all the time, sort of unfailingly, day by day. And there's something of a contrast between um, the empty barrenness, um, lack of direction of the landscape, contrasted with the sun's generosity that freely gives always orientates if only you turn to it if only you ask of it then the sun 
begins to answer his prayer. And the son, of course, being one of the stars, moved by God's love and so channeling that divine wisdom. And does so in a way that I don't think Dante or Virgil expect. Um, but, of course, they're in this process of constantly stepping into new life, into what they hadn't anticipated before. Um, that is the change of consciousness that they're undergoing. Um, and what happens is that spirits fly by them. Um, I think they're a bit like sun rays, and they don't see them, but they do hear them. Again, they sort of feel their message, you might say, much like we feel the sun's rays, feel the warmth. And what they hear um, are sayings of extravagant generosity, again, very much in the spirit of the sun. So they hear Mary at the wedding of Cana saying to Jesus, they have no wine. They hear the words, they have no wine. And that, of course, is a um, to bring to mind the first of the signs in John's Gospel that Jesus performs, uh, where he makes vast quantities of wine uh, when the wedding uh, ran out. Um, so there's something of uh, the extravagance in Mary's remark, they have no wine, they certainly will do soon. Then they hear the words, I am Orestes. And this is a classical reference to Orestes, who avenges the murder of Agamemnon and faces a capital charge. And what happens is that his friend Pylades says, I am Orestes, um, in order to stand in for his friend and um, to take um, the brunt of the punishment for his friend. Um, so again, it's another instance of extreme, extravagant, you know, life offering, substitution um, out of a dear friendship. Um, and then the third words they hear are actually um, Jesus's words. Um, they are the words, love your enemies. Um, this uh, quite widespread, actually, moral demand, which again seems to go beyond what reason would require. Um, love your friends, of course, but you know, love those who hate you. Um, this extra mile, you might say, and they hear on the wind here as these spirits pass them, um, beginning to help them get a sense of what this place is about. Now, Dante is confused, um, but Virgil gets it. Virgil understands what's been shown to them. And quite explicitly, actually, again, maybe even in the spirit of the place, um, this canto explains things fully and generously so we can see clearly. Um, Virgil explains to Dante um, that they've arrived at the terrace of the envious. And what's been set up, again, are this kind of these sort of polar opposites. On the one hand is the mood of envy, even in the colour of the rocks. Um, and envy here... Um, of course, means um, in its darkest, most shadowy form. Um, you know, there can be a sort of envy which makes you uh, want to work on yourself. I mean, even in French, uh, the verb can mean to love someone. Um, but here we're talking about the kind of envy um, that so much hates what the other's got, that it wills that the other might lose what they've got. Um, not even to steal it from someone else, but just so that someone else can't have what you feel you lack yourself. So it's a kind of murderous envy. Um, it's a completely life-destroying envy. 
you know, not only um, have the envious in life been unable to um, work on themselves to gain a fuller life, um, but they have so hated what they lack uh, that they've projected that out on others and would um, and wish that others could lose what they have as well, um, so that everyone's caught up in a sort of vicious spiral down. So we've got that on the one hand um, beginning to appear. And then, of course, the other pole, though, is this super extravagant generosity, um, you know, which the deeply envious can't begin to understand, but that they must sit with here now on the second terrace in order that the two can interact and form this kind of alchemical change within them, um, seeping through the deepest recesses of their soul now in purgatory, even as envy has so darkened their inner life um, in their lives. They then see some souls and immediately recognise that they're living in this tension, this polar state between the sun's generous free giving, the remembrance of all these remarkable extravagant acts of generosity in history and myth, um, and um, not even wanting to others to have um, what they themselves didn't have as well. And the souls are depicted um, as huddled up, and they're wearing clothes that are coarse, of the same colour as the rock. Um, they're you know, deeply um, infected by the spirit of the, the shadowy spirit of the place. Um, they um, look like beggars, and they're having to ask now uh, for what they don't have. And as well as being forced, as it were, although I think, you know, willing themselves to sit beneath the sun um, and all that um, it gives so freely. Um, most dramatically of all, Dante notices that their eyes are stitched shut with iron wire. He says it's a bit like the falcons who, when they're young, have their eyes sewn closed to keep them calm and still, um, but with this added well, in a way, seeming cruelty, but when you think about it, um, and remember these are souls, so what we're seeing is their kind of inner state, their full vitality, not clothed um, with their bodily garments. That, I think, is what it's like when you get caught in this state of envy. Um, to have to deal with your own self, to take back your projections, your loathing and hatred of what others have got, and bring that into yourself is as hard as it would be to have your eyes stitched shut with iron wire. You know, the tendency, even in smaller ways, to constantly want a different life for yourself and to wish the future, um, you know, fuller of what others have got. Um, you know, we live in a culture now um, where that is a prime dynamic. Um, it's what powers growth, what keeps consumption going. Um, the desire not just to have what you need, um, but to have what others have got. Um, and it's, you know, it's an almost impossible task to reverse that, to come to the present, to look at your own soul um, and to pay attention to that. It's quite as painful as having your eyes wired shut. And so I think this is Dante the poet's deep insight um, in seeing this, painting this picture for us now. Um, people who have spent their whole lives looking out at others must now take back their projections and look in to see what they might find. Dante says that 
as they walked towards these souls and then alongside them. Um, he was walking closer to the souls, huddled up against the cliffs, while Virgil was walking on the outside um, near the drop off mountain of purgatory. Um, it's one of these nice touches. They're working together. They're giving of it to each other. You know, Virgil's giving safety to Dante so that Dante can understand a little bit more. Virgil having realised what's going on too. And then Dante um, starts to feel uncomfortable. And again, because they're in this state of give and take uh, once more, um, Virgil understands what Dante's feeling without Dante actually having to speak. Um, it's this deep empathy, which is a kind of telepathy too. We haven't seen it that much yet in Purgatory, but it starts to happen again here now. Um, and what Dante's feeling is uncomfortable, because he's looking down at these souls. Um, you know, at one literal level, they can't look back at him, so he's rather inclined to sort of gawp at them. Um, but I think it's good that he feels uncomfortable because he is aware that what he is at risk of doing um, is, as it were, vicariously almost enjoying their suffering. And again, this is kind of akin to the dynamic of envy because it's projecting out onto um, the life of another um, rather than uh, staying with your own life yourself. Um, so um, he doesn't want to feel this vicarious suffering and asks Virgil, you know, what he should do, how he can bring himself forward at this point and live something um, that is important to him, not just gawping um, at others. And, you know, Virgil says, look, ask for someone to speak to, ask for an Italian. Um, and he does. He calls out and asks whether there is anyone from the lands of Italy here. Um, he does it in a rather extravagant way. Um, he talks about you whose souls are now working through the sins of the past so that your memories might flow more freely, um, so that that which dominated you in life can be relieved. Um, I think it, he's sort of in the spirit of the purgative process in the space, but maybe it's deliberately supposed to feel a bit clunky because he's sort of learning how to be generous himself, um, even as he addresses these individuals. And someone speaks up. She is Sapia, a Sienese noblewoman. Um, not a huge amount is known about her in life, but it's realised now that she was very wealthy and actually gave a lot of her wealth to found a hospital in Siena, um, which you know makes you wonder what she's doing here. She seemed to be able to give extravagantly herself, but she then confesses here on Purgatory that actually she revelled in other people's grief throughout her life. And the story she tells here is of how in the um, wars between the states of Italy, um, she had enjoyed the destruction of her own townspeople. She'd love to see them scattered across the plain. Um, you know, you might wonder why, um, but that is what she confesses now. And so presumably she built this hospital um, only on the surface to help heal people, but underneath, perhaps, she was caught up, maybe sadistically revelling in the suffering of others, um, or maybe that more subtle but no less powerful thing where you keep the suffering, as it were, of the world in others that gives you the delusion that you'll never suffer. Um, uh, it's one of the kind of twists and contortions that people on this terrace of purgatory have a lot of time to work through and that we as readers might wonder and speculate about. 
she says that um, she was like a blackbird um, singing um, of her own command, her own territory. Um, and she says that she wasn't even afraid of God anymore. Um, that's how kind of massive uh, her envy got. Um, she felt that she was ruler of the world. That's how deeply troubled she was. But um, she's here in purgatory um, now working that through um, because she was saved by the prayers of a Franciscan saint, a chap called Pierre Pitanayo. Um, you know, you might say that she was able to receive the goodwill of his prayers. And that's the important dynamic. Not that he made the clunky, you know, say ten hell mirrors and you get out of purgatory kind of approach. No, it's much more about her heart being open to that. Um, even at the last minute in her life, she was able to take that in. And so the law of love was able to amplify that many times, making her now on the second terrace of purgatory. Um, she is interested in Dante too. She asks um, how Dante happens to be here. Again, indicating that her soul is in a very different state. You know, she's interested in someone for their own sake, not just because it says what she hasn't got. Um, and Dante explains you know, that he's here um, as a living soul. Um, his eyes aren't sewn shut. Um, he also remarks that um, he knows that one day he'll come back here again as a soul, and his eyes will be sewn shut again, but he thinks he won't be here for very long. I mean, this is uh, an indicator of um, his self-understanding, because he adds he's going to actually have to spend a lot longer on the terrace below. He says, I can feel the weight of the terrace below upon my shoulders already. Um, you know, you might say that envy wasn't really Dante's trouble. Um, he had a great gift. Um, there was absolutely no doubt about that. Um, but his trouble was that he could feel that his gift was actually his possession. And so he could get caught up in all those spirals of pride, which we were discussing earlier. She, though, um, in the spirit of generosity, says, what a wonderful miracle. Um, she asks that he remember her um, when he returns to Earth. Um, and I think that that is a call not out of um, pride, you know, um, tell them a good story about me, um, even though I was bad, which is what we've heard in the Inferno. She says, tell my story in its fullness so that others might learn when they've seen the full story of, you know, maybe why I um, gave money for that hospital, so that they may learn, and then that will be for her benefit as well. Again, this sort of sense of giving and taking now. Um, and she ends the canto with words that are about the city-state as a whole, about Siena um, and all the citizens. Um, it was well known as a landlocked um, city, um, and in a way was envious, you might say, of the ports of Italy, um, the security and the power that that brought. And she remarks that in her lifetime, um, the rulers of the city particularly um, had tried um, foolishly um, to buy themselves a port, to almost dig themselves a tunnel um, to have access to the sea and to water. But it was a foolish mood this inability of Siena to accept its own life, to accept its own constraints and turn those into blessings. And so she wants her city to reflect on that as well. So the canto that began with this kind of barrenness, lack of direction, um, 
not able to contemplate its own inner life, contrasted with the sun and then um, these stories of you know, dramatically extravagant free giving, ends now with Dante and Sapir um, giving to each other in their reflections, in their mutual learning, um, and a spirit of compassion and kindness surrounds the exchange, even as they're both very seriously trying to attend to their own darkness, which would otherwise hold them back. 